You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Good afternoon. It's August 27th, 2023. I'm Rosalino Candela, hosting this episode of the Hayek Program podcast. I'm a senior fellow here with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics here at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And welcome back. I'm very fortunate today to be joined here by Dr. Peter Betke, who will be talking to us about his latest book, co-authored with Konstantin Zhukov and Matthew Mitchell, entitled The Road to Socialism and Back, An Economic History of Poland, 1939 to 2019. Pete is a university professor of economics and philosophy here at George Mason University, as well as the director of the F.A. Hayek program for advanced study in philosophy, politics, and economics at the Mercatus Center, also here at George Mason University. Pete, welcome. Thanks for being here today. I'm thrilled to be here and talk about this with you, Rosalino. It's been a while since we did one of these, so I'm glad to be doing this again. Now, I'm really excited to be here today to talk about this latest book that you've published, particularly because looking at the, the plethora of things that you have published over the decades that you've been a scholar, in many ways, I would return regard this particular book as a return to your intellectual roots, being one of the leading scholars in economic history and the political economy of the Soviet Union, and just in the field of transitional political economy in Eastern and Central Europe more generally. Now, one reason why I find this book particularly important, because for someone like you and I, who were both born into a world in which over two-thirds of the countries on earth, they were either directly or indirectly influenced, you might say, according to the political and economic doctrine of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. And then as a result, central planning, you might say, was the dominant economic model of the 20th century. And now we have an entire generation of young people who have grown into adulthood, who have no living memory of the Cold War, of communism in, in Eastern and Central Europe. So just setting up this background about yourself and the intellectual climate that we live in today, just tell me a little bit about what motivated you to write this book and can you provide some some context in that regard? Yeah, sure. Great question. This is, uh, I should mention right from the beginning that this is part of a broader project that the Fraser Institute is doing to provide an educational uh, resources to teachers and to students about the realities of socialism, precisely to address the issue that you raise, which is the lack of a living memory among the current generation of what socialism was like in its various experiences in the 20th century. And so Matt Mitchell and, and, and Constantine and I were doing two monographs in that series. One was on Poland. The other one is on Estonia. They have a lot of uh, similar themes to them, but also very unique differences. And we hope to clarify those unique differences, but then stress the general principles about what the institutional operation of socialism produces. Now, one of the things I want to sort of communicate is that a lot of the younger generation who puts qualifiers in front of the word socialism, like democratic socialism or 
you know, we're not going to be, you know, like the last variation of socialism. You know, th those arguments are not new. It's not like, um, you know, the older socialists all thought that they were totalitarians. You know, it, it's, it's that totalitarianism is an unattended, undesirable consequence of pursuing the socialist project. That's the point of Hayek's road to serfdom. That's the tragedy of it all. And communicating that, I think, is very important because it's not just that socialism failed because it had bad people in charge of it. It's that even if you had the most you know, morally uplifting people in charge of it, the institutional organization has a logic of its own that affects incentives and the capabilities of individuals to achieve things that leads to more and more centralization, more and more concentrations of power, more and more dysfunctions uh, associated with it. And so we try to explain, you know, the logic of that as what it is Poland tried to have to overcome in the 1980s and then into the 1990s and subsequently, and the role that their policies played in achieving that overcoming of that dysfunctions of socialism, and then the natural politics of pullback and other things. Yeah. Just on what you just said, there's a, a core point that you make, particularly in outlining the argument in the subsequent chapters in chapter one, in which you talk about the knowledge problem, you talk about the power problem, and then the control problem. How are these problems, you might say, endemic to the failures of socialism in Poland, but across Eastern and Central Europe in general yeah. as well? Well, I think that the, if you boil it down to essentials, economics is really the logical playing out of the implications of scarcity. And the way I would like to put it, so forget all labels of schools of thought or even ideological positions. Just think about what are the implications of the fact that we live in a world of scarcity? So if we live in a world of scarcity and individuals are striving to do the best that they can given their constraints, what they're going to do is they're going to have to make trade-offs. And in order to make those trade-offs, they're going to have to have tools to the human imagination to help them in making their trade-offs, negotiating their trade-offs. And in commercial society, those come in the form of property, relative prices, and profit and loss accounting statements. In the absence of property prices and profit and loss, how are individuals going to negotiate trade-offs? They're going to negotiate them somehow, but they're not going to have the tools that property prices and profit and loss give them. Instead, they're going to have tools of politics. They're going to have tools of you know, power. They're going to have other kinds of uh, you know, hereditary uh, birthrights and things like that, like we've seen historically. And what economic systems is really born out of is the comparison in terms of the ability to realize productive specialization and peaceful social cooperation of these alternative institutional frameworks in which you operate. So if you're not operating in a world of property, contract, and consent, you're working instead in a world of administered, you know, state and whatnot. There's systematic incentives that are associated with that. There's going to be certain comparative advantages of certain individuals within that society. They're going to be rewarded and that has consequences. And that's what we're trying to lay out in that section there. Though, so, you know, property prices and profit and loss allow us to overcome the knowledge problem. Knowledge problem doesn't ever disappear. It has to be dealt with. And the institutional framework of property prices and profit and loss is a way to deal with it. If you try to get rid of property rights and thus private property rights means that you eliminate the basis of exchange eliminates the basis of the relative price ratios, right? That's going to then, those prices go into feeding into the profit and loss statements, all that stuff goes away. 
how is it that individuals are going to negotiate these trade-offs? Well, they're going to negotiate the trade-offs using some other criteria, politics mainly. And that's going to then lead to these issues of power, right? Because then power is going to be involved. And then there's also like the whole issue of the span of control. Like, can they actually coordinate all the activities of those subservient under them to control them? And that's going to lead to like hierarchy and the desire to actually impose on people controls. And because that's the only way you're going to be able to do things. So I know you have a long history of studying history, you know, and think about the way in which military try to organize labor services, right? So it's counterintuitive to try to rely on markets to do that. That's what Milton Friedman did when he tried to abolish the draft, right? Or Walter Oy explaining like what the consequences are of having a, a, an all military based on the draft. The cost of that, Mar you know, he introduced market logic to try to explain, you know, how you would do that. But we mobilize labor resources very quickly if we bring them under social control, right? And so a lot of times in war, what do we do? We actually try to bring it under that kind of control. But control where you have one end is different than control where there's a multiplicity of ends. And so there's a huge difference between a wartime economy and a peacetime economy. And, you know, that was one of the things that socialists missed as well. So all of these issues having to do with the knowledge problem, you know, the power problem and the control problem, they all come out of the fact that we're substituting property prices and profit loss in the coordination of economic activities and trying to substitute in direct control. And then that, you know, leads to all these other problems because the only way to solve the issue is that I would amass power and I would try to use that power in order to make sure I controlled the process of production. So based on what you had just talked about, the fact that the institutional arrangements that would be necessary to coordinate economic activity through a market price mechanism, there was actually an alternative mechanism that at least the, the Polish economy was aspiring to achieve. And I'm talking about the fact that one of the main opponents to the Austrian school, namely Ludwig von Mises and F.A. Hayek, who had argued about the impossibility of economic calculation under socialism, one of those opponents, Oscar Lange, would later be appointed. He was a universe, at the University of Chicago, and he was later appointed by the Polish government that was set up by the Soviets to implement central planning. And he had a vision of the way in which a socialist system should operate. He referred to it as market socialism. But how did it actually operate, Pete? Well, he didn't pursue market socialism when he was in power. He didn't introduce his own model. You know, they still were trying to introduce central planning. And uh, then what happened in uh, the central planning is that had its failures and its gaps. And so then you always had a implicit market emerge, a legal market, both in the productive sector and in the consumer sector. And, you know, that's how the economy kind of operated. It was constantly on a treadmill of reforms. And then they tried to decentralize some of the mechanisms in the 80s. This is, you know, before solidarity really kicked off and you know, just like in Hungary, they tried to decentralize. They called it goulash communism at one time in, in Hungary before the reforms. And, uh, you know, but each of the reforms did not really work. They didn't stick and they didn't lead to the kind of gains that they were hoping to get. I want to return to this last point that you want to make, but I just want to transition a little bit because although your book is a case study of the economic history and the transitional political economy of Poland, hence the, the name of the title, The Road to Socialism and Back. One of the things that's very I found to be very important in reading this book is that it transcends the case study and provides a broader picture of what's necessary for countries to transition from poverty to wealth. Now, 
you frame the central problem of this transition uh, in terms of what is known today as the transitional gains trap. And you talk specifically about this point called the way you frame it. It's there's the pathology of privilege that is endemic to the Polish economy prior to 1989. Can you just take a little time to explain what this is, what these what these terms mean and why Poland in particular was successful in overcoming this pathology and privilege and the transitional gains trap relative to its neighbors in Eastern and Central Europe? Yeah. So the emergence of real existing socialism as a rent seeking society, that is the pathologies of privilege that emerges because in the absence of property prices and profit and loss in in trying to figure out how to allocate resources you do it based on political privilege that's how all these systems in central and eastern europe and the former soviet union actually operated and that creates this problem of these what they called the new class or the nomenclatura who are people who benefit from the existing state enterprises and and whatnot now so those state enterprises don't help the economy as a whole but they benefit a particular class, sort of the new class from that. So if I'm going to transition, I'm going to have to deprivilege the new class and then open it up for competition, which is one of the reasons why trade liberalization is so important, because trade liberalization automatically opens up new supply chains that didn't have to be built up in your own country, but in, come in from outside and challenge the monopoly status of the existing you know, rent holders. But so you have this transitional gains trap, which goes back to Gordon Tullock, a classic example of this is a taxicab medallion, which is that in order to, uh, you know, get the taxicab medallion, you know, the, the super normal returns are basically capitalized in the price that I have to pay to get the medallion. So I don't make any super, you know, normal returns, but at the same time, I still am in a privileged position. So, you know, if, if I think about a standard you know, monopoly kind of diagram with a downward sloping demand curve. And then I have a marginal cost curve, which is flat, but I have the monopoly price and then the competitive price. And I do the comparison. I'm going to find out that the Harburger triangle is smaller than the Tullock rectangle <laughs> where the, and, and so therefore reforms were going to cost me more than the benefits I get back from reforming. So it would be like asking people to give $25 to get $20. So that's a transitional gains, right? They're not going to do it, but you have to overcome it in order to get rid of the monopoly power. And so in our uh, argument, what we argue is not just a transitional gains trap, but it's combined with a credible commitment issue. So we have to solve the, cre the transitional gains trap problem, but in a way that's credible, that you're not going to then just recycle the pathology of privilege. And this is where various different political actors now may in fact become very important signals. So in this case, Lasek Balcharovich was very important, and in particular what he did with currency reforms. So if you look at the uh, Zloty during the 1990s, there's lots of political turmoil in, in Poland, but the currency is actually quite stable. Whereas if you look at Russia in the 1990s, there's political stability, but the ruble is all over the place, right? And so Balcharovich was able to get through a kind of a, a very, you know, credible set of reforms for stabilization, privatization and, and whatnot. And those tackled the transitional gains trap, but didn't lead to a new round of the pathology of privilege. And so that was an important reason for their success. And we try to document that to be able to tell that story because we think that's the general 
story for all post-socialist economies that they have to do something like that. They have to overcome the pathology of privilege that emerges as an unattended, undesirable consequence of the fact that socialist planning cannot work as, as um, desired. It's only way it can operate is to have a metamorphosis of the institutional infrastructure, which rewards privilege. And so that's why you get the power and the control problems, right? That go with that. So, yeah. So that's what we're trying to do in there. And, and uh, you know, Sachs and Lipton wrote a very cool paper in the Brookings Papers of Economic Activities in the 1990s, in which what they did was they looked at trade liberalization as the key policy, because if you could get trade liberalization through, uh, then that would open up the supply chain. It would take on the monopoly privileges because you're broadening the nature of the market. And therefore, that might be a, you know, a, a good bellwether to determine whether or not you're really going to put through reforms rather than not. You know, with Baltrovich, you're looking more at like fiscal and monetary policy domestically, but trade policy would be a huge one as well to look at. So based on this last point on credible commitment that you talked about and the role that uh, Lesik Baltrovich played in implementing a set of reforms, now, oftentimes there's this debate when it comes to reforms between shock therapy and, and gradualism. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between shock therapy and gradualism? And, and, and more importantly, what was it about the situation in Poland in the 1980s that Balcerowicz and his party and the Solidarian, Solidarity Movement, how were they able to build up, you might say, the political capital that they could signal this credible credible commitment. One of the things that I find incredible in reading through this, this book is the fact that even at a time throughout the 1990s, when unemployment rates were very, very high, oftentimes double digits in Poland, the reforms did not break down. The, the government did not back away from it. So I, this is an interesting puzzle. If you could yeah. talk a little bit about what happened that they, that the, the party could establish this credible commitment and could build up this political capital in order to see these reforms through. To some extent, I think that, you know, begin in the beginning, which is that you have to also recognize the wide scale acknowledgement and appreciation of the failure of socialism rather than that the failure of socialism is up for debate, right? That, oh, if we just would have tried harder, we could have done it or anything like that. I think that you know, people looking and seeing that uh, socialism with a human face has dysfunctions just as socialism with an iron fist has dysfunctions and recognizing that point and realizing that's not an alternative, at least at that time, which is part of the reason why you want to highlight the realities of socialism today, because people don't share that same common knowledge about the failure. On the shock therapy and gradualism debate, I guess the easiest way to think about that is that, um, Shock therapy is the understood correctly, and it, it's a brutal practice. So I, you know, I'm not advocating it, but in its origins, it was an effort to get a patient back on a path to health, not a solution, and then their health is restored. So in economics, a lot of times people think that it's just a matter of do the shock therapy, and then all of a sudden we're everything's is okay. But these economies were so distorted that they had to have a good dose of market discipline introduced to them so they could start to adjust and adapt to the new reality, not that they would be fixed overnight. Gradualism requires sequencing 
oh, I'm going to do this first and then this first and this first. And that misses out some of the simultaneity issues that you and I know as economists are, you know, like, how can you have, you know, let's say getting rid of the pathology of privilege unless you end up by having privatization so that you can end up by having alternative supply chains come in. You also have to have entry rather than protected industries, right? You got to get rid of the barriers that are legal barriers to entry that exist in a system. You can't just do that like, oh, I'll do that tomorrow and this 10 days from now and this, you know, so many years from now or whatever, because if you do, if you don't do it, then you can't get the first thing. So there's a simultaneity issue that gradualism runs into. So this was the big debate, you know, that was going on. Just to, to, to point something out, Milton Friedman in 1979, you know, famously went to China and in the tour, they asked him, Professor Friedman, what should we do? And he said, privatize, privatize, privatize. In 2006, Friedman was asked if he would reconsider what he said in China. And he said, oh, yes, privatize, 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 provided there's a rule of law. You know, that little clause is a huge difference, right? And so we learned that in the, in the post-transition societies is that you need to actually have this institutional infrastructure of property, contract, and consent, as David Hume laid out like years ago, right? And so how do we overcome the pathology of privilege, but to introduce markets? And in order to introduce markets, you can't give a little bit of market. That causes dysfunctions if you do that. And so the weight would fall, the argumentative weight would fall in favor of shock therapy. But shock therapy within a rule of law, with a great respect of property, contract, and consent, with fully in place social approbation and disapprobation for honesty and dealing and other kinds of things like that. So you got to get, you know, so you move from getting the prices right to getting the institutions right to making sure that you have the social and cultural and institutional, you know, framework right. And that's what we learned in the transition is that this is triple embeddedness. You know, prices are embedded within institutions. Institutions are embedded within a broader framework of society. And so there is no such thing as economic processes in a vacuum. Economic life always takes place. Commercial life always takes place within law, within politics, and within society. And we as economists need to study law, politics, and society for how they frame transactions of individuals so that they can realize productive specialization and peaceful social cooperation. And that's how you generate the wealth of nations. And that holds whether or not I'm talking about Poland in, you know, 2000s, or I'm talking about Poland, you know, the Polish-Lithuanian constitution. Now, I want going back to what you had said before, you were talking about the role of Balcerowicz and and the the reforms that he put in place. But uh, you and I as an, as economists, our central focus is usually to understand going back to Adam Smith, what are known as invisible hand processes, the notion that human beings when they are pursuing their own goals under the appropriate institutional conditions that you talked about, they can lead individuals to cooperate in a positive some way without any of them or any group of those individuals intending that to happen. But the story of Poland reminds me of a quote that Buchanan uses from his own professor in Frank Knight, which is he quotes Knight as saying to call a situation as hopeless is to call it ideal. But for Buchanan, the Buchanan's whole project of constitutional political economy, of public choice economics was to invert that idea was to say, well, we have a non-ideal situation, that means that there's scope for hope. But that means that there's a scope for human beings, pivotal people at pivotal times, if I can quote you. And so 
what, what could you say about at times of critical juncture, like in 1989 in Poland or in other times in history, uh, what role do you see critical people at critical times playing? Because the story of Poland's transition illustrates that an individual or a group of individuals can have an impact that will affect the economic and political trajectory of that country for decades to come. I think the way I would sort of lead to this, I don't want to fall into a great man theory of history. And so I think that's a mistake. But I do think that we do have to recognize that there are entrepreneurs, both in the private sector and in the public sector, and that the characters of those entrepreneurs matters and that we should study them and we should study you know, that there can be, as you said, pivotal people at pivotal times. Baltrovich, I think, was one of them. You can also get a bad choice, right? So the fact that Russia ended up in the hands of Boris Yeltsin mattered. There was a guy from St. Petersburg at the time, Sobchak, I think I'm saying his name right. He unfortunately, you know, passed away, but he would have been an alternative. He was a much more committed liberal. Now, I have no idea if he would have continued to be that way when he was in power, but he wasn't a drunk. <laughs> yeah, Yeltsin was a drunk and, you know, basically a master of knowing how to do political manipulation and, and whatnot. And, and it mattered because, you know, his, his regime, while getting started, was also deeply corrupt. And then, you know, the heir apparent to that was Putin, you know, and, you know, we've, we've lived with the scars of that, you know, in the, in the 25, 30 years since, you know, that's gone on. And so I think that, you know, we need to study just like Max Weber did, you know, leaders. Uh, there's a, a new book out by Randy Holcomb called Follow the Leaders. You know, it's, we're not very good at it as economists, just like we're not very good at studying entrepreneurship because our models and whatnot are built to try to de-emphasize the importance of an individual as opposed to the system. And those those lessons that we've learned about how systems operate are very, very important. So I don't want to poo-poo that, but I think that we should be more open to studying the power of individuals and the role that they play um, as, as pivotal people in, in actual real history. So I want to close the loop of our conversation, going back to something that you had alluded to in the very beginning. You touched on it, but you really didn't develop it. And I think this is a crucial point that needs to resonate, for example, with this current generation, which is you made the point that this case study is exemplifies a tragedy, that that socialism, the aspirations and the implement, implementation of socialism was a tragedy. Now, given that's the case, it also illustrates that there's a capacity for hope for change. What was the tragedy that you alluded to? And what are the lessons of hope that we can we can take away from this great book. So I, 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 not so much, I would say, you know, in the book as much as just in general, I think that liberals, and by that, I mean, you know, classical liberals, true radical liberals, we can share, especially historically, a lot of aspirations with people that are on the left, universal human rights, the fact that we're one another's dignified equals, that uh, we should have the ability to uh, live our lives as we choose, to love in our lives who we choose, uh, you know, these kind of principles, right? I should have freedom of my conscience to be able to think and believe as I think and believe, not as someone forces upon me to believe. And, and these kind of core ideas, we share those same values with people on the left. These, these ideas of solidarity, 
you know, fraternity, equality of human beings. You know, we, we share those. We just have different means by which we try to obtain them. And so it's a mistake, I think, to see, you know, free market economics people being portrayed as callous and not concerned with community and not concerned with the welfare of the least advantage in society and not try to have human flourishing be at the core of our doctrines and that our greatest possibilities or our goals of our institutional patterns are to maximize human flourishing and minimize human suffering. So we're not trying to be callous in the face of human suffering. We're not trying to deny social ills, that we live in a world with social ills. The question is, is what are the most effective means to ameliorate the social ills? And I think economics teaches us that private property, freedom of contract, the entrepreneurial spirit, is our best hope for ameliorating the social ills that we face. It creates the opportunity economy. It allows ordinary people, when given the freedom, to do extraordinary things. It doesn't require that extraordinary people be given great power to then try to achieve great goals. Okay, And so I think that if we can communicate that message to young people about the power of an opportunity society and that economics as a science is a tool for the curious that provides them with hardcore principles of a science, right? The truth and the light that come from pursuing the logic of coping with scarcity. But that also there's a beauty in economics that comes from understanding the self-governing capacity of free exchange and spontaneous order. And that there's hope because it, the least advantaged are lifted up from miserable poverty. If we allow an entrepreneurial economy to operate, that is at both the private and public sector, because the public sector entrepreneur is coming up with the rules of the game, which empower more private sector entrepreneurship to come up with new innovations. And so if we can see the power of technological innovation and of entrepreneurial cleverness and creativity as opening up the possibilities for those who are most vulnerable in our society to actually have a stake in life, right? And, and more, you know, more of giving it a go, then that's tremendous hope. And then finally, economics teaches us compassion because the lion's share of the benefits of economic growth go to those who are most vulnerable. Yes, the rich get richer, but the poor get richer at a faster rate than the rich get richer. And we need to demonstrate and show that to people. In, in 2015 is the first time in human history, less than 10% of the world's population was living on $2 a day. When I was a college student, that number was closer to 40% of the world's population. Just think of that amazing improvement in the lives of billions of people as they've overcome the Malthusian trap and they've been allowed to enter into modernity by economic growth. And so I think if we can teach those lessons and teach them with, you know, an enthusiasm to excite the minds of the curious, not dogma, right? Not teaching it as a dogma, not teaching it as, uh, you know, a, a finished and done doctrine, but instead as an invitation to inquiry to the curious to sort of try to grapple and, and find pleasure in figuring things out about how commercial society operates. Well, you know, we have done our job as economics as a public science. And the greatest contrast between the commercial society is to be found in the militarized socialist economy, 
because that's what socialism ends up by doing. But it's an economy of lockstep. It's a lockstep economy. You have to command and control versus the openness of the entrepreneurial creativity and cleverness. And by contrasting and comparing those societies, we unleash what economics can teach young people. And so that's part of the reason why I think that not only is this Fraser project very, very valuable in getting the infographics, right? So one of the great things about this book is that we have a lot of, you know, very clear and, and illustrative data so that people can see the comparisons and stare at it and look at it and learn from it. So I think those are very important, the info, you know, infomatics uh, that uh, that gets across to young people so they can see it. But I think the other thing is to see the power of economic reasoning, to be able to create the conditions for an entrepreneurial society versus the dysfunctions of a command society. And hopefully, you know, our prose and, and illustrations and examples, you know, communicates that. I think it was important if you, you know, go back to this book that, you know, we acknowledge, for example, you know, the, you know, massacre, because we want people to understand the utter tragedy and maliciousness that took place under the socialist regimes, even in Poland, right? Uh, so you don't just have to look at Solzhenitsyn's gulag to see the horrors of what mankind has perpetuated on other people. I mean, they're, you know, in the 20th century. And I think we've forgotten that. We've forgotten those, those lost souls. And so it's important to bring that up, but it's also to bring up the positive side of what happens when you unleash the entrepreneurial spirit rather than squash it. And so, you know, we were trying to communicate that as well. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time and joining me in this conversation. I want to congratulate you on the publication of this book. And I thank you all for being here today. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.